So as Dwight mentioned, um, and if you're part of our church family, you received an email a couple weeks ago with um, an addition that we plan to vote to adopt uh, at the conclusion of the service. So it's under creation, the way that God has created us in our statement of faith, and it particularly has um, things to say about our sexuality and marriage and so forth in the midst of a moment in our culture, in our country, where there's lots of confusion around these issues. And um, so why are we doing this? Let me just speak really briefly to this as we enter in. We're going to look at Genesis 1. Um, this morning. So why are we doing this? Well, certainly there are the legal protections, like we want to make sure that our statement of faith and our constitution provide us as many protections as possible from being sued for discriminatory practice. Um, So it has impact on church membership and who we will marry and perhaps building use, etc. So in that sense, it's a step of wisdom. But that's more of a minor reason, actually. I mean, legal protections may come and go, Uh, Clear doctrinal statements and bylaws can't protect you from everything. So why are we doing this? I think actually if I were to try to summarize it in three words, I'm sure there's additional ways that we could unpack this, but clarity, fidelity, and legacy. So clarity in the midst of confusion in our cultural moment, we need to be clear on what the Bible says and on what we believe. We can't assume these things, especially as it relates to the coming generations. So we need to be clear. We also need to be faithful. So fidelity is important, especially if the, the heat gets turned up on Christians, right? So fidelity in the midst of that pressure, we need to be prepared to stand with Jesus. And then legacy, again, passing the baton of fidelity to the coming generations. So we've got to actually talk more about these issues. If we don't, the culture will be happy to talk to, influence, and shape our children, okay? So let me just give one brief little illustration, and then we'll dive into Genesis 1. So there's a website called Persuasion, and in April of 2021, they ran an article by someone named Kira Bell. Um, She was born... Um, biological female. She transitioned as a teen, um, you know, to take on this um, male uh, identity, and then she regretted it and detransitioned. So I'm not going to tell, you know, give a lot of details on the whole thing, but there's a very interesting quote that she provides at the end. She says, we are told these days that when someone presents with gender dysphoria, confusion about their, agenda, their internal feelings about who they are is different from their biological sex. Um, we're told these days that when pe- someone presents with gender dysphoria, this reflects a person's real or true self, that the desire to change genders is set. But this was not the case for me. As I matured, I recognized that gender dysphoria was a symptom of my overall misery, not its cause. So that's one anecdote. I'm not saying that applies to everybody um, that wrestles with these things, but it raises an important question. What's the cause? What are the symptoms? What are the cause? We don't want to confuse those things. So we actually want to get to the root level, and that's why I use that quote, is what is the cause of all of this? So to answer that, we need to go back to the beginning. 
All right, so go ahead and turn in your Bible to Genesis 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 26 to 28. We'll also look at some other texts as Genesis 1 just ends up setting a trajectory that gets unpacked um, throughout the Bible. So I'll read Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and then we'll dive in. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay? So, point number one, the order and the attack. So, in the beginning, Genesis 1.1, God, by his sovereign word, you know, let there be, ordered the chaos. So, the earth was without form, so formless, chaotic, and void. It was empty. And the darkness was over the earth, and then God speaks into that chaos and emptiness and orders it and fills it, okay? And it was good, good, very good. So consider that dynamic in the creation of our first parents. God ordered and filled by creating a separate species. He's just gone through, you know, all of the animals, plants and then animals, and he creates this species called mankind, who alone was made in his image after his likeness. And yet humanity was of a single kind. So humans were not commanded to reproduce according to their kinds, plural, because there was only one kind of this being, Humanity. The point of that is there's no superiority or inferiority within this one human race. All peoples are created equally in the image of God and thus share equal dignity and honor. So we see this in the language of verses 26 and 27. So look at it carefully there with me. Let us make man, so in Hebrew it's Adam, singular, Humanity, mankind. Let us make man in our image. So God created man, Adam, singular, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, singular. Male and female, he created them, plural. So in addition to this oneness, this unity, this equality, God created separate Beings, male and female, distinct and unique, each in their own right. So order came through unity and diversity. And further order was to come through the embrace and the outworking of that unity and diversity. So separate as male and female, their separateness was part of God's order and his glory and our glory. United as mankind, they alone bore the image of God. 
So this unified binary was true and good and beautiful. And when they united as husband and wife, they became one flesh in full life union, including sexual union, to fill, right? Ordering and filling, to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. So male-female sexuality, sexual ordering, would accomplish the filling. The ordering would accomplish the filling because God gave this mandate to his image bearers to rule and subdue and cultivate and keep. So God's creation, his ordering and filling was to lead to more ordering and more fullness. He separated and he joined together. He ordered and he filled. And he filled Adam and Eve with this glorious personhood and uniqueness And then he ordered the uniting of those separate beings for fruitfulness and multiplication. So order and fill. All through divinely designed separation and union. Okay, and it was all very good. So God is the creator of all things, infinitely wise and loving God. He knows what is good. He alone can declare good what is truly good. The world was broken when Adam and Eve, deceived and tempted by the evil one, sought to determine for themselves what was good for them. So fast forward to chapter 3. You can just flip there. Chapter 3, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, so, you know, God had already warned Adam. He had already warned them. In the day you eat of this, you will surely die. There was vast freedom and one prohibition, and the evil one wanted to flip that and make it seem like God was his celestial killjoy, and he was holding out on them. So you will not surely die. There's no judgment. There's no consequences for ignoring God's design and his boundaries. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The only gain there is evil. Get it? They're already like God. They're already made in his image. Why do they need to be like God? Knowing good and evil, the only thing that they will know in addition to what they know is evil. So in other words, Satan's sowing the seed of, you know, these lies, doubts about God's goodness and his character. Oh, he's small. He's easily threatened. And there's this deceitful promise of self-determination. You should be the one to decide what's best for you, what's good for you. You determine what is good. And so Adam and Eve bought that lie that life was to be found where death had been promised. So God said, good, good, very good. Satan said, not good. And God's holding good from you. And they bought that lie. Verse 6 chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she's determining something good for her that God prohibited, and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise. That word desired is the same word for covetousness in Exodus 20 at the Ten Commandments. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate And we've been doing this ever since. And Satan continues his tyrannical rule, and sin dominates and continues to wreak havoc. So C.S. Lewis 
makes that ancient temptation contemporary by writing this. I think one may be quite rid of the old haunting submit, <laughs> submission, suspicion which raises its head in every temptation that there is something else than God, some other country into which he forbids us to trespass, some kind of delight which he doesn't appreciate or just chooses to forbid, but which would be real delight if only we were allowed to get it. The thing just isn't there. Whatever we desire is either what God is trying to give us as quickly as he can or else a false picture of what he is trying to give us, a false picture which would not attract us for a moment if we saw the real thing. He knows what we want, even in our vilest acts. He is longing to give it to us. So when we take what God has united and we try to sever and separate it, Chaos, emptiness, is bound to ensue. The opposite of his purposes to order and to fill. So we actually separate sex and sexual fulfillment from marriage. Here's marriage, its intended context, and sex and sexual fulfillment. We can do that in our culture today by way of pornography, masturbation, premarital, extramarital sex. So also... Disorder results when we separate reproduction from marriage and sex, when we separate gender from biological sex. Do you see? These are separations that we make that fly in the face of God's intended ordering. So the good sexual union in marriage, the good of sexual union in marriage, that's intended to be life-giving to a marital covenant, and it's intended to create life, when it's separated from its good context, it ends up doing soul-level damage. So when God orders by combining, creating a unity, we only do damage when we try to separate. Like Jesus' words, he's quoting Genesis here, um, about marriage, what God has joined together, let no one separate, apply more broadly in a sense as well. So the essence of humanity's primal rebellion is the arrogance. Like this is the heart level, root level issue. The essence of humanity's primal rebellion is the arrogance of self-determination of good and evil. So consider that, that big picture theme with the specific application to the sexual revolution. Do you hear the sympathetic vibrations? In fact, if we pay attention, so if you're familiar with the, the logic of Romans 1, same-sex desires, unnatural desires, or we could also add transgenderism, are symptoms of the problem, not the root of the problem. The root of the problem is the refusal to trust God as God and God as good. So when we turn from him and we seek to determine, we presume to determine for ourselves what is good, then all kinds of things issue forth from that. All kinds of disorder, chaos, and emptiness comes. So all of this assumes that there's actually a fundamental, central thing going on here that, that's kind of 
maybe the elephant in the room or it's, it's so obvious we can sometimes miss it, we have to realize that the, the big question here is what story do we actually live in? What do I mean by that? Well, here's the point. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth is absolutely essential to embracing these things. Okay? There are two primary options. Like if there's no God, then of course we can do whatever we want. Right? But if God is God, then he must determine what is good and true and beautiful. And I know there's other religions and other, you know, iterations. I'm just, for the sake of the point, simplifying it down to two. So the point is, what story do we live in? What is this life? What's reality? As Christians, we know the story we live in. But we need to think this through so that we live lives of integrity. We also need to think these things through so that we can engage lovingly and helpfully with others to help them examine their worldview. So, like, if there's no God, of course we can do what we want. Biology, gender are predicated on a story about reality. Because listen, if we evolve from, like, just so that you can get in the minds of probably your average coworker or neighbor or whatever, um, we need not to be these Christians who are just kind of like, you know, so shrill and angry and, you know, nostalgic about yesteryear and, and you know, we don't want to talk to anybody about anything. And as soon as we do, our temperature goes up and our blood pressure goes up and all this stuff, like, that. get into the shoes of someone who has a completely different worldview than you. If we evolve from primordial soup, then sure we should be able to choose our, our gender. Do you see? Like, the story matters. Everything is ultimately meaningless. There is no story. Like, if God didn't design us, there is no story. There is no design that we're denying or cutting against, you know, the grain of or out of sync with. So if you want to change your gender or marry an animal or merge with a machine, I mean, there's plenty of people in Silicon Valley talking about the next step in human evolution where we can actually merge with machines and become the next iteration of who we will be. Because again, they have a completely different worldview. They don't embrace this story. They're living in the context of a different story. But if we were designed and created, and I know I'm preaching to the choir, most likely, by an infinitely wise and loving God, if he made us in his image, then to reject that relative to sexual ethics is to go back to what broke the world in the first place, self-determination of what is good. The creator alone has the right to determine our purpose and our nature. So to reject that is to shake our fist at the potter and tell him that he doesn't know what he's doing. So our identity is determined by and found in the one who made and designed us. Our true identity is found in the author of the story who determined our role in the story, including the sex he gave you. So the reason I'm saying it this way is because I'm assuming there's probably people in this room that struggle with these things. So some of you are like, oh, of course, I, I know that. 
Well, guess what? Some people really struggle with these things. And we need to be a context where a place, a community, where people can be honest about those struggles. I am really wrestling. Like, there's a whole continuum here. How many of you are comfortable in your skin, like in your body? Maybe you are by now, but when you were a kid, when you were a teenager, I don't know how well, you know, it's got a whole age range and everything. So you realize that like gender dysphoria and body image issues are different, but they're also on the same continuum, a spectrum. There's like some connection there. So here, the church ought to be like understanding and supportive. Like we all struggle and we all kind of feel like, like we're not comfortable in our own soul skin. Of course, that's going to have like outworkings in our bodies and so forth. So, yes, I'm preaching to the choir, but I'm also preaching to people who I'm assuming there's going to be some of us that are struggling with these things. So, it's, it's an appeal. Like, remember, the author of the story determines our role. And that may come with all kinds of challenges, but there's grace to face those challenges. And to reject his design, even causes more brokenness and confusion and chaos and emptiness. So, um, well, I'll hit this quickly. So, again, the story, like being made in the image of God, what is that all about? Like in the ancient, era, ancient Near East, it was common for kings to call themselves the image of God. Okay, there was lots of gods, you know, and the king would be the image of God on earth. So he represented the rule of that pagan deity, right? Well, we are images. We are intended to be royal representatives of the king of kings and the lord of lords. So what, what they would do, some of these pagan countries, nations, kingdoms, whatever, they would make images, the, the king would make images of himself and place them throughout the realm, throughout the kingdom. So those images were a reminder in every place that this region, this village, this city was part of that king's kingdom under his rule. But Yahweh's people were not supposed to do that. They weren't supposed to make carved images. They would have no gods besides Yahweh. They were not to make any images of God. Why? Because he had already made his images. And they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth because the whole earth belongs to Yahweh. You see? So we human beings are intended to say by our very existence in God's image, whether people know it or like it or not, that this world is God's world. It's his domain. It's the place of his rule. And amazingly, we human beings are called to rule and subdue in his place, on his behalf, as his vice regents. Obviously, that's gone horribly wrong. Image shattered by sin. So rather than filling the earth with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, we also fill it with idols and, and violence and injustice and unrighteousness and all of that. So what story is going to reign and rule? I'm going to quote Rosaria Butterfield a few times. Um, I'm going to actually explain who she is in a few minutes here. But she asks this question, is personhood determined by sexual desires, that would be Freud's position, or by being made in God's image, male or female, with inherent ethical and moral responsibilities, constraints, and blessings? Genesis 127. 
So this is why part of the language that we're adding to our statement of faith is this. We believe that God creates human beings in his image as either male or female, and that this creation is a fixed matter of human biology received from our creator, not a matter of individual choice. So your biological sex is a gift that you receive from God. It's not a choice that you make. There are natural desires according to God's design, and there are unnatural desires that go against that design. Listen, let me also say this. We all have aberrant desires, whether heterosexual and aberrant or homosexual and aberrant. But again, aberrant (laughs) presupposes that there's a story, that there's an author, that there's a design. So here's the options. In the words of Arthur C. Clarke, who was a science fiction writer, um, he co-wrote 2001 A Space Odyssey. He once said, two possibilities exist. Either we are alone in the universe or we are not. Both are equally terrifying. So the point is, either we are completely alone and this is all just a bunch of random meaninglessness. That's kind of terrifying. Or there is a God and we've all, you know, told him to shove off and gone the other way. So in a sense, that's terrifying. It can be terrifying, but then it can also be wonderful because of how he has come after us by his grace. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. So if God is the author, the determiner of good, if we are all bent and broken, what hope is there for us? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We are all sexual sinners. And actually, if you think that you don't fit into that category, that's really dangerous. The people that didn't think they needed Jesus were the ones that, had, that heard the harshest words and the harshest warnings from Jesus in the Gospels, okay? So third point, the renewal and the gift. So again, we're looking at Genesis 1, but we're seeing it in the context of the whole I should go like this, the whole arc of the story. So why did Jesus come to earth? Why did he live the perfect life that we have all failed to live? We've all wandered, right? We've all rebelled. Why was he tempted as we are, yet without sin? Why did he die on the cross in our place for our sins? Well, to initiate the renewal by providing the gift of God's saving grace. So the wrath of God is revealed against our unrighteousness. You can read Romans 1 to 3 and see that. God can't be indifferent to what has wrecked the world. And we deserve the just judgment of God. We can't atone for our sins. We can't straighten out our own bentness and brokenness. But the grace of God can God demonstrates his love and that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. The cross is how God can be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Justice is satisfied. Jesus pays the penalty of our sin on the cross, in our place, paid in full. It is finished. Mercy is satisfied. You know, it doesn't work to just kind of like sweep the Sins sweep our sin under the rug of the universe, that wouldn't be just. So justice is upheld, mercy is satisfied, 
And then when that good news sinks in, it sounds like this. I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And the renewal begins. We're new creations in Christ. So I don't want to be ruled by that which broke the world and is, you know, creating chaos and emptiness. I want to be ruled by King Jesus, the one who came to make us new. So the passage that Dwight read, like it's, it would be unloving for us to soft pedal or not say this. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. It's actually very explicit in Greek. You have active and passive partners referred to there. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Made right with God reconciled to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So salvation is a gift. It brings renewal. Anyone can be saved and made new. Look at the list. Any of those people. And such were some of you. So there should be this wonderful, inclusive, whosoever will may come ethos in the church of Jesus Christ. There are no sinners too bad. The worst of sinners gravitated to Jesus when he was on, on the earth. But there's also a cost. Jesus is Lord as well as Savior. Jesus and the gospel do not come to you to be added to your life like a garnish or just like an extra app for your phone to enhance things. Jesus and the gospel come in exchange for your life. Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever tries to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. That is how the renewal begins and gains traction. His death, his life and death were given to renew us into the image of God. He is the image of the invisible God. So we were made in the image of God to reflect his glory and to spread it through the earth. And then with the fall, like the, the mirror is shattered. Jesus comes, the perfect image of the invisible God. And he lives and dies in our place so that we can be remade into the image of God, which is why we want to be conformed to him, right? To his character. He is the fullness of the image of God. He's the truly human human. So the gift of ordered fullness comes through Jesus. That's what the renewal is pushing us toward. Vertical renewal, like we can be set right with God. We can be at peace with God. We can have a relationship with God. He's our father. We're adopted into his family. Like everything is right and wonderful with God. And internally then, our sins are forgiven. Our shame, like he can deal with all of that. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We now know who we are, so there's internal peace that comes, and then interpersonal order and fullness that can result as well. So, C.S. Lewis says it like this, the more we get 
what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. In that sense, our real selves are all waiting for us in him. This is from mere Christianity, by the way. It is no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surrounding and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and which I cannot stop. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other people's thoughts or even suggested to me by devils. Until you've given up yourself to him, you will not have a real self. The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find eternal life. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Look for yourself and you will find in the long, long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. So if at the heart of sin and the brokenness of this world is self-determination and rebellion that flies in the face of God's goodness and wisdom, then at the heart of the response to the renewal and the gift is repentance and faith, right? Turning away from what wrecked the world and what wrecks our souls, turning to Jesus who gives us the gift and begins the renewal by his grace through faith in him. But as we've already considered, there is a cost. So point number four, the cost. There is a cost for every person who wants to follow Jesus, right? Mark 8, I already mentioned it. And oftentimes it's different. Like kind of the lead edge is different. The real test of whether or not you want Jesus or you want to just use him like a tool to get what you really want oftentimes focuses somewhere. So for instance, with the rich young ruler, it was money. With Zacchaeus, it was money. One walked away in unbelief. The other one, Zacchaeus said, yes. And he repented and he believed and the renewal began. For some, it's reputation. Think about the Pharisees. It's too costly. They didn't want to give up their reputation and their power. They were envious of Jesus and so forth. Or it could be sex. It could be relational idols. The woman at the well. But listen, we all must count the cost. Not just those with same-sex desires or gender dysphoria. All of us need to deny ourselves, take up a cross, and follow Jesus. So it is a gift. It's wonderful renewal, ordering, and fullness that comes as a result of the gospel taking root and Jesus being Lord and Savior. But you know what? It can also cause a total train wreck. The cost can be like a train wreck. So the gospel is the best news in the world. <laughs> but it can really shake things up. Let me just give you a couple examples. Rosaria Butterfield, I told her I was going to tell you who she is. So if you're not familiar with who she is, she's a wonderful gift and resource for the church in the realm of sexuality and gender in the gospel and a lot of other ways as well. Um, if you want to really just learn about Christian hospitality, she's got a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, which is like aimed at creating Christian Navy SEALs of hospitality. Um, it, it's a really good book, but it's super convicting and, and Lord help us. Um, 
So anyway, if you're not familiar with her story, you can read about it in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely, Unlikely Convert. I'll just give you a summary of who she is and her story in her own words from her website. So Rosaria Butterfield, a former tenured professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University. She converted to Christ in 1999 in what she describes as a train wreck. Her memoir, I already mentioned the book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Raised and educated in liberal Catholic settings, Rosaria fell in love with the world of words. In her late 20s, allured by feminist philosophy and LGBTQ plus advocacy, she adopted a lesbian identity. Rosaria earned her PhD from Ohio State University, then served in the English Department and Women's Studies program at Syrac Syracuse from 1992 to 2002. Her primary academic field was critical theory, specializing in queer theory. Her historical focus was 19th century literature informed by Freud, Marx, and Darwin. She advised the LGBTQ student group, wrote Syracuse University's policy for same-sex couples, and actively lobbied for LGBTQ aims alongside her lesbian partner. In 1997, while Rosario was researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against people like me, she wrote an article against the Promise Keepers. I think they had come to town and she wrote something in the local newspaper. A response to that article triggered a meeting with Pastor Ken Smith, who's a local pastor who ended up becoming a resource and a friend. In 1999, after repeatedly reading the Bible in large chunks for her research, Rosaria converted to Christianity. Her first book, I already mentioned it, details her conversion and the cataclysmic fallout in which she lost, quote, everything but the dog, yet gained eternal life in Christ. And I was actually listening to her. I've listened to a few different talks that she gave, and I would encourage you to go online and type her name in and listen to her give an interview or give a talk. Um, she's a really sharp and thoughtful lady, and she was interviewed by someone, and she told the following story, because again, the gospel can create a train wreck. She said, I was speaking at a large church a couple of years ago, and an older woman in her late 70s waited until the very end of a long book signing to speak with me. She said, Rosaria, I'm in my late 70s. I've been homosexually married to my partner for 50 years. We have children. We have grandchildren. But I've finally heard the gospel. Am I going to lose it all? Or, I'm sorry, she said, and I am going to lose it all, right? Rosaria Butterfield said, right. And she said, I just wish somebody had told me this before. And then, again, this is still Rosaria's words. There are a lot of people who are trying to be polite, I think, in this woman's life. And there are a number of people who, by trying to be polite and save face and maybe do what appeared to be the gracious thing, were perhaps unwittingly, but we're still doing this, they were tying a millstone around her neck. We've got to come to terms with whether or not we believe 1 Corinthians 6. That doesn't mean we become cranky, nasty, you know, judgmental, like, ooh, not at all. But you can see there's a cost. There's a cost for people who come to Christ. But there's also a cost for us if we're going to follow Christ and share Christ. Our personalities should not be the stumbling block, but certainly Jesus is going to be a stumbling block to many. Now, let me qualify it. There's a massive difference in how we should treat those in the church, claiming Christ, and those outside the church. Okay? Just 
Listen to 1 Corinthians 5. So the chapter before the one that Dwight read from. Paul writes to them, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. They need Jesus. Go associate with them. Or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since that would mean you'd need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And that may refer to the Lord's table or it may be because table fellowship was a sign of, you know, um, friendship and relationship. And it was basically like saying, ah, this stuff doesn't matter. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Answer, not your job. Not my job. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And the answer is yes. So, listen, this is not to say that genuine Christians won't or can't struggle with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. They can and they do. And we need to be able to be a community that can walk with people that have those struggles with love and patience and support. So listen, every Christian has a war going on within, right? Romans 7, Galatians 5. The question is only who is Lord? And we've got to fight by grace through faith in Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit to fall in line with the wisdom and the design of the author because this is the story we live in, right? So let me just tie this briefly to the gospel culture series that we just finished. Remember, the church must be safe for sinners, not safe for sin. And we use the hospital illustration. Like it would be silly, you know, like a hospital should be safe for sick people, but not safe for cancer, not safe for infection, right? So listen to a couple quotes, because again, this is safe for strugglers, but we're going to help each other. We all war with sin. So we need to help each other war with sin. So Dane Ortland in the book, Gentle and Lowly, a lot of you are familiar with that book. Jesus sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. You see that? Jesus sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. Or... William Arnault, probably a couple hundred years ago, wrote, the difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that one has sins and the other has none, but that the one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. So the norms in America are changing. They already have. Today's challenges from the sexual revolution, there are lots of them, and the church is caving in some places. We dare not cave. We must not cave. We need solid convictions, and we better have compassion. We've got to be ready to love broken, messy sinners. So listen, on, on these issues, some of us mainly may be spending our time bemoaning the cultural shifts and longing for bygone days 
But this is what God has chosen for us. Like this is our time in history. So we've got to be faithful. We need to be ready, of course, right? Know what we believe and ready for calm, spirit-empowered, self-controlled conversations filled with clarity and conviction and courage and compassion. We need to be ready to love and care for people who are broken and love them in sacrificial ways. Like actually, Rosaria said, one of the things that really scared her is leaving her LGBTQ community because they knew community and hospitality way better than the Christians did. And you can imagine how easy it would be to be very lonely with these struggles. So we need to be ready to love and care in sacrificial ways. We need to help those who struggle. Safe people, safe for sinners, not safe for sin. And it's almost certain that standing firm is going to come with increasing cost. So again, we need to be ready or we're going to cave when the heat's on. We'll become people pleasers. We'll save our relational comfort, our reputations, our job security, and shrink back from identification with Christ. That actually is really dangerous. So you see how Mark 8 cuts all different directions here. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. The last reason Jesus gives is, if you're ashamed of me and my words, in this sinful, adulterous generation, I'll be ashamed of you when I come in the glory of my Father with the holy angels. So there's danger of caving. There's also danger of getting shrill and failing to love. Again, out of fear oftentimes, like fear of where our culture's heading, fear of what it's gonna cost us and, and, and our kids and our grandkids, which again, is understandable. But if we are driven by fear, it will lead us into all kinds of ugly places. So fight and flight aren't the postures we should be taking. Courageous and compassionate love and truth which leads us to the last point, the calling. How shall we then live? Um, it's going to be brief. And then we're going to sing a song. And then we're going to close and have our, our meeting. So, so many different ways, so many different directions we could go. I don't even know if I'm going to mention this, but this book is really helpful. Gender Ideology, What Do Christians Need to Know by Sharon James. Um, you know, Politics, legislation are important. They have far-reaching implications. But for most of us, most of the time, our faithfulness is worked out not by listening to all the talking heads, although, again, we need to be informed, but by praying and loving the actual people that God's placed in our lives, at work, in our neighborhoods, in our families, and so forth. Like we, of course, we can't go soft on our convictions. This will cost us but we dare not get hardened against those who need our compassion and our love. They may hate us because they think that communicating the story and the design that God has intended and communicating that to them is attacking their person. Okay, but we can continue to love them. They need Jesus. So, let me just close this way. For those of you who may be struggling with your sexuality, listen to some hopeful words, one from Ray Ortland and another from Rebecca McLaughlin. Um, here's Ray Ortland. Inactive sexuality is not non-sexuality. 
It is purposeful sexuality. It is sexuality finding its ultimate purpose, dedicated to God and blessed by God. How do we know? How do we know that inactive sexuality can be glorious sexuality? We know from Jesus. He was a man. He never had sex, and he was gloriously complete. What did he do with all his energies at all levels of his being? He went about doing good. So can you, by his grace, for his glory. I'm not saying it's easy, it's hard. In fact, I know of only one thing harder than obeying the Lord, and that is not obeying the Lord. Caving to my impulses, doing sexuality my own crazy way, and then feeling the bitter aftertaste of regret and shame. That's harder. And then Rebecca McLaughlin. At the resurrection, no one who has chosen Jesus over sexual fulfillment will have missed out. Compared with that relationship, human marriage will seem like a toy car next to a Tesla or a kiss on an envelope versus a lover's embrace. So given the story that we live in, sin must not define us. Our identity needs to be in and defined by Christ, not our internal desires. Personal identity is not in the eyes of the beholder. It's in God's eyes. And ultimately, those are the eyes that matter. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing a closing song. Lord, we need much wisdom and much grace You know where every single person is at on these issues, and I pray that you would draw near tenderly, lovingly, and speak your truth to their hearts and minds and show us all what it looks like to trust you and follow, to deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow Jesus because you want us to really live now and forever, and you want other people to really live now and forever. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.